Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean Tobias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Chris Hobson, the CEO of Rare Beauty Brands, which acquires and incubates high-potential indie beauty brands in a really unique hybrid accelerator model that I'm not sure I totally understand yet, which is why you're here, Chris. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, Dean. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. The, um, I guess maybe I'll just start out with that. What is the Rare business model? And you know, are you more of an accelerator, an incubator, kind of a roll-up? Uh, guy, my favorite thing to do. What uh, what's what's your uh, business model at this point? So I, I think of us as a as really a a roll up with um, an incubator on the side. And so really, we started out with Patchology as our main brand, and we scaled Patchology, and that was doing really really well. And uh, along the way, I realized that we have you know all this great distribution and a really strong team and a really strong back office. And I said, you know, what would be really cool is if we could have more brands on top of that platform that we've built. Um, so we did our first acquisition in 2019, acquired a little brand out of Brooklyn, New York called Plant Apothecary, um, brought it in and we've been scaling that brand. Um, and along the way, we also get feedback from retailers and people come to us with ideas and really good creative people in house. So we're able to not only acquire brands, but also just sort of invent them out of whole cloth ourselves. I love that. Lots to talk about there. The, um, so the, uh, uh, patchology, you started that way back in 2014 seems ancient, but I guess it's not that long ago. No, I'm dating myself. But it is. Yeah, exactly. Well, that wasn't your first rodeo. What, uh, how did that come about? And then did you just wake up one day and say, Hey, this isn't enough. I want to start doing some roll-ups and responding to this market that's emerging or what happened there? Yeah, well, I mean, I started my career at Procter & Gamble as a brand manager and learned the P&G way to run a business. Um, and uh, and then I, you know, left in, in right around 1999. And that was when, you know, tech and dot com was, you know, going crazy. Oh, yeah. um, I did an MBA and then, you know, spent about 10 years in tech. And when I found the precursor to Rare Beauty Brands, what became Patchology, it was a, a neat little company down in Providence, Rhode Island, that was making transdermal patches uh, for drug companies. So, you know, companies so it was like a med tech play, really. Yeah, exactly. And companies would come to us and say, we want a better nicotine patch. And we would go into our mm -hmm. lab and create a better nicotine patch. And then they would take it to market. And I approached them and they approached me and we sort of said, hey, we've got an opportunity here to take the intellectual property of the patch business and turn it into a consumer product. Um, and so, yeah. And so because people really resonated with the, the insight that patches have been around for decades, patches are proven to deliver ingredients deep into the skin, and nobody was really taking advantage of that technology to deliver all the great actives in skincare deep into the skin, which is where they need to go in order to, to sort of do their thing. So yeah, we launched Patchology in 2014. We took the traditional model, which was then, you know, start at Bergdorf Goodman and Neiman Marcus, sort of the, the top of the department store market. Top of the heap there. Yeah. And we did and, and, you know, went to Nordstrom and Saks and then Blue Mercury and Ulta. And now we've expanded globally to, uh, to you know, Mecca in Australia and Space NK and Harrods and 
Selfridges in, in the UK and Sephora in Europe and really all over the world. And, and along the way, you know, I, 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 at one point I realized, you know, we've built this great distribution platform. We've got an amazing team that we're, that we're working with here. We've mm-hmm. built out a very robust back office, you know, let's, let's create a mini PNG. Let's go back to my PNG roots where you've got multiple brands under one holding company. And at the same time, the whole indie beauty revolution was happening. And, and, you know, I just saw a huge opportunity to blend in from a management perspective, to blend the best of PNG database, decision-making really disciplined brand management together with entrepreneurial agile approach to, you know, building brands in a, in an iterative, you know, entrepreneurial kind of way. So that's what we're doing. Quite an evolution. So lots to question there. However, I think I just figured out the answer to my question, which is what's your business model? Not incubator, not accelerator, not really roll up. You're literally like a venture studio, one of the uh, go-to buzzwords right now. That and SPACs, those are the main two uh, <laughs> things that are happening. So yeah, some of a venture studio, venture studios don't always take full ownership, but you're, you're clearly, you know, owning. Can any... Are you interested in like other brands coming in and just being part of your incubator accelerator? You know, maybe, you know, like we do at 1871, you know, where you might take a piece of it or something, or does it have to be wholly owned once you lock and load with them? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think we'd be, we're, you know, the, the order of the day is to be flexible. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the things I haven't quite figured out yet is, you know, if a brand wants to come in and, and take advantage of the back office and take advantage of the, the distribution relationships we have, how do we devote enough of our time and resources to that if we're not in a majority ownership position? And that, yeah. that I haven't quite figured out. So I'm very, still very still different model, cool. right? Yeah. If I, if I was you, I'd be favoring what I own the most of to make sure they're uh, they're successful because te- technically they'd be competing. There's a big group in the UK that does that. They're a uh, you know kind of a beauty uh, accelerator that um, we've had on that does uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's called Founders um, Founders Lab, I think it is, and. Well, uh, Factory, maybe? Founders Factory, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Much better. Yeah. I've always envisioned, you know, having all of those companies together. They're kind of competing with each other. So it's like, I'm always curious how far the collegial uh, attitude goes there. So then you also, so how did you, uh, so what's Plant, your other company that you picked up? So the. Uh, yeah. So great little brand. Um, I saw it in a store. I was walking through and, and it had this really distinctive sort of Bauhaus design, but it was really natural skincare and personal care products. And I just fell in love with the look and feel of it. And, you know, I bought it and I used it and they had a body wash that I fell in love with and, and was using it. And I was surprised a couple of years later when, you know, uh, an investment banker called me and said, Hey, I heard that rare beauty brands is acquiring brands. This brand, you know, is, is looking for an exit and looking for the ability to have those added resources to scale. And, you know, we did the deal fairly quickly and, you know, um, we've been super excited about it. It's a, as I said, it's a great little brand. It's got lots of good bones to it. And um, we've been able to take it and plug it into our distribution system and, and give it the discipline back office and, and the resources that it needs. You know, it turns out like having a balance sheet and having money for inventory and, you know, all of those things is really <laughs> important. Um, yeah. and been able to add that and the brand is, uh, is growing again. It's great. Yeah, you brought all that lean back office expertise, the brand strategy and development, especially channel development, you know, the kind of global sales force. Uh, I assume you've yeah. got calling on every retailer on the planet. So that's yeah. that's attractive. Um, so what's your uh, what's your pipeline look like? We're not under NDA here, but uh, give us a sense of where is this going over the next, I mean, you know, three, there five are, years. 
Yeah, I mean, there are a ton of brands out there, right? I mean, we've seen the the rise of the indie brands, not only in beauty, but in food and in pet and really in health, all these spaces. Health, beauty, wellness, you name it. There, and many right. of them are converging and merging. And we've had many of them on the program uh, just because it's so popular the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. And, and so we're certainly witnessing the growth of these indie brands. And I think that what happens with indie brands is over time, you get to a point where you realize... I'm either going to need to raise venture money or private equity money and build out a whole team and, and do all of that, which means dilution for the founder and it means risk for the founder and you know bringing on new partners and how is this all going to work and what's going to be my path forward. Right. Um, and some founders just you know sort of say, hey, probably better for me to to take a step back and and bring in you know sell the sell the majority of the company and and. Uh, um, you know, bring in professional management to help me scale. And that's really what we do. You know, the, the perfect scenario for us is founder wants to be all about product and the mission and the story of the brand right. um, and telling the story to the world, but then they don't want to handle finance and accounting and inventory and demand planning and, and, you know, sales and, or, you know, making sure that you've got the right people showing up at the stores to do freelance work and all of that stuff. They that hate that work. part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All that, the hard work that it really takes to build a brand. Um, and, uh, you know, I took a bet that there were people out there that were in that stage that were ready to do that. And so far so good. I mean, I, I probably have three to five conversations a week with beauty brand founders that are yep. looking at this. And it doesn't always work out for a variety of reasons, but um, you know, we've got a very good pipeline of brands and one specifically I can't talk about obviously, but we're working on right now that would uh, really jump us up. Um, and, uh, and we're really excited about it. Yeah. I think it's great, great timing, great opportunity. I could think of a handful right now that uh, I should give uh, your cell phone uh, number two. Uh, however, what I've been seeing, um, just as part of monetary partners, we're investing in, you know, next gen food companies. Um, the valuations for health, beauty, wellness, food, just the, that whole um, ball of wax is, they're almost like tech valuations now. They're yeah. very high. Uh, what, uh, is it, are you running into that with the smaller ones or, is, or are they a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned. Sometimes it doesn't work out. A lot of the times it doesn't work out because, um, you know, a brand that's doing one, two, three million in sales think that they should be valued at the same multiple as a hundred million dollar brand that's kicking off 35 million of EBITDA. And, you know, there's there's value to scale and there's value to profitability that doesn't necessarily accrue to a one or two million dollar brand. Right. Um, and so we certainly see unre unrealistic valuation expectations out there, um, you know, and, and you know, to be fair, like when I was one or two million in sales, I probably wanted that valuation too, right? So I I, I get it, um, and I respect it, and I respect the entrepreneur who wants to take his or her vision to the next level before they think about exiting. So um, yeah. we see those we see those valuations out there. It really has to be like just like a marriage. It, it really has to be a fit on both sides, right? So we we wait till we find the the brands that are really really good, really really passionate founders, but you know have realistic valuation expectations. Yeah, interesting. And and there's all kinds of cultural questions here because sometimes you're bringing these companies together. Other times you're still letting them run independently. Have, do you have a formula there or is it going to depend on your third and your fourth one? Yeah, probably more depend. But I, I think that one thing that COVID has taught us is that virtual works, you know, working from home works. Um, yeah, you get the structure right and you get the incentives right. And, you know, the management systems, which we've now gotten right, um, it really works. And so, you know, my job is to convince people that, you know, 
they're building something meaningful and they're coming to work on, you know, a mission driven company. That's, that's, that's very valuable and people, you know, they're motivated by that. And, and the same, same holds true for, for brands that we acquire. Um, you know, we don't have, we have a head office. I'm sitting in it right now, um, but we don't have a ton of people here. We let people work from wherever they work from. And um, the same thing holds true for brands that we acquire. It's sort of, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a uh, an operation in Poughkeepsie or you know Topeka, and that works for you, great. You know we'll take you know we can be virtual and we'll take the products and we'll take the brand and we'll we'll scale it globally. But we don't need you to be here in Boston where we are. No, of course not. That's an old that's an old model. I, I remember when the the uh, VCs uh, used to demand that the uh, founders move to Silicon Valley, and quite frankly, Microsoft for decades when they were acquiring companies. I actually passed on a deal with them once selling one of the companies I was CEO of because they wanted everyone to move to Seattle. And mm -hmm. Anyway, the, yeah. um, the reason I ask that question is twofold. One is a, a lot of this back office stuff in this industry is science. It's coming up with these new formulas and coming up with things. You're not just whipping it off to a contract manufacturer. So I assume like plant probably had some pretty interesting back office science stuff going on. Maybe the new one that you're looking at will as well. And, there seems to be economies of scale there where you eventually end up with this kind of back office lab kind of thing versus, you know, I get all the shared services stuff you do, but the, but the secret sauce is really in the, you know, what you guys are making and how you market and position it and brand it and keep the founder edge in there is to me a little separate. So how do you, how do you rationalize that as you acquire three, four, five, six companies? Let's say we're, you're back on a year, year, two years from now. Yeah, I mean, actually, the chemistry part of it that you allude to, the product yeah. development part of it, um, is ripe for uh, for centralization, right? Yeah. I mean, having I so. having a team of people that is on the leading edge, monitoring what ingredients are hot, monitoring what ingredients really work, blending those together, innovative formulas. I mean, there are a lot of contract formulation labs out there, um, but having that expertise in house. Typically, the the typical indie brand doesn't have the the capability and the expertise to invest in that. You got to have a lab, and you got to have, you know, hoods, and you got to have mixers, and you got to have you know a bunch of stuff, and you got to employ people. Um, and so, as we grow our capabilities, we expect that our capabilities in that area will grow as well. I mean, it's 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 ripe for, um, you know expertise that, you know, and you look at Estee Lauder and L'Oreal and where I used to work at Procter and Gamble, I mean, at P&G, we employed more scientists, more PhDs than Harvard, Stanford, and MIT combined. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and, and so that's certainly the vision for rare beauty brands is as we grow our capabilities in that, in that regard will grow as well. That's good. That was my guess. It'd be a smart, uh, smart move. And, and as an alternative, you know, some of these beauty brands, you know, are looking at you know, being acquired by a Unilever versus you, you know, the, the evaluations might be different. They might not be, but um, seems like you might be a, a more friendly or entrepreneurial place to to go. But um, that was part of that question too. Is like, what happens to the culture? You start rolling up all these companies. Some of the CEOs have some types of some type of earnout. I assume you want to keep that connected yep. tissue there for a while. Yep. Yep. You know, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned Microsoft doing acquisitions and forcing everybody to move to Seattle, right? Yeah, um, I'm dating yeah. myself, but yeah, that was, yeah, 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 that, no, was that, that was a rule. Yeah, and and actually, P and G when I was there, when they would do acquisitions, I mean, you know, yeah. Gillette was a huge acquisition, so most of it stayed in Boston. But really, the the default was 
absorbing everything into the board, right? right. And what I've seen, even the big companies, P&G, Unilever, I mean, even here in Boston, uh, P&G bought First Aid Beauty, and it yeah. seems to be running as its own little unit, and they're not trying to necessarily um, change the change the culture. Um, Unilever bought Living Proof, same thing. It's still here in Boston, and it's, it's still doing its thing. Um, you know, our approach is very similar to that. I mean, we can we can bring the company in, and you know, we want to prize their their unique culture. We want them to keep their unique culture because that's what presumably has gotten them to a, a certain level of success. So. Um, yeah. We definitely want to do that. Yeah, you're. Uh, I guess a comparable might be different size and scope, of course, as we had the CEO of Dermalogica on, owned by Unilever, and they have kept that culture intact. It's a B2B, more sales channel, of course. It's very different from the consumer yeah. push, but the two founders, husband and wife team, are still, mostly the wife is uh, still in you know, a face and involved, you know, professional CEO running it. So uh, yeah. it's rare that, that it works out that way. But most large companies, we've got this program, Dancing with Startups, where we really help large corporations figure out how do you actually work with smaller companies, whether you buy them or not. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, don't uh, don't kill them along the way. So it sounds like you're, you're potentially a favorite, uh, a favorite channel there. Uh, can we talk about the industry a little bit? What are you seeing in terms of um, trends? You know, uh, personalization is is huge, both from a technology point of view, in terms of recommending what to buy, but yep. also personalization of goop, as, as we call it sometimes. Yeah. No, the personalization of the products, whether it's you know something you put on you or something you put in you, and whether it's a supplement or or you know your patch thing. It's um. Yeah. It uh, really interested in your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, I think personalization is a really hot trend. I mean, we've all seen the trend around clean beauty, and there's a new trend around sustainability. But yeah. personalization is, is clean right and green, up there. right? Right, clean and green. Yeah, and, but personalization is right up there, and you know, it's it's something that's really hard to do at scale. At one right. point, we looked at a um, we looked at a, a way to make patches on a basically a custom basis for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's really hard to make that work, really hard to make that scale. And my thesis on it is that you're either going to have huge capex like the guys at um, I think it's Function of Beauty are doing like customized hair, right. um, you know, and, it, and it's you got to raise a ton of money and you got to build. It's a big know, back end. Yep. Yeah, the, the ability to make you know one offs for people, or you do some things like other brands are being a little bit more innovative at the consumer level where they let the consumer mix and match themselves. So it's a little yeah. bit of a DIY approach to personalization. Right. Which usually falls apart. Um, but there's no, a certain, there's a certain chemistry. Uh, what do you call that? The, uh, the personas, it's the, it's the chemist kit persona. Right. Right. That exactly. There's still there maybe 10% of the population will do. for a while, but yeah, there's a small cadre of consumers that will do it. And then there's a novelty factor where people will, will start it out and then, but does it become part of your ongoing skincare regimen? Uh, you know, very much TBD in my mind. Yeah. Or does it come and go and then you've got a retention issue. You can't, can't keep the subscription going. Yeah. A lot of companies chiseling away at that and uh, scalability is always tends to be the issue. Well, what, what about retail? You seem like you're really plugged in with global channels and retail. You have to be, I mean, that's part of your secret sauce. And yeah. um, what are you seeing there um, across categories, but uh, happening over the next couple of years, you know, we've, we've many shows have talked about the brain damage we went through in the 2020 lockdowns and they learned a lot, but, you know, looking forward for the next couple of years, what, um, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, we certainly lived that uh, roller coaster of 2020, and you know, we sell through department stores and specialty beauty stores, which you know, in mid March of last year, shut their doors wholesale. Was not was not fun. Yeah. No, it was not fun, and you know, there were a lot of us who were you know hanging on with with fingernails, you know, in, you know, embedded in the wood, trying to, to you know make sure that things were okay. Um, and then the business moved online and it's sort of cliche now to say that the online trend has accelerated by five years and you know what was a 20 percent penetration in, a, in our category is now a 35 percent penetration in our category so that certainly happened and happening and and i think that's here to stay i don't think we're going to go back from digital penetration in the in the industry i think e-commerce is is here i mean my mom is uh, 74 and she's now buying products uh you know skincare products online um you know, she, finally, she finally understands what you've been doing all these years right yeah. exactly exactly so um you know i think i think the way products get to market are changing you know ways that they're that they're getting to market are changing um but the fundamentals of the business are still the same you gotta have great products you have a great brand story um you know you gotta get it to into the consumer's hands as efficiently as possible um so that's not changing i, I think that there are lots of opportunities though for for new ways to engage with consumers um, through, through video, through, you know, new social media channels, um, and, you know, new technologies to allow people to sort of try things on virtually and, and things like that. But I, you know, I, I do think that the, you know, the, the world of in-person physical retail is not going away. I think that there will always be an opportunity and a need for human interaction for, you know, trying things on or trying things out in stores, um, you know, smelling, touching, feeling before you buy, I, you know, call me old fashioned, but I, I don't believe that that's going away. No, it's still there. The retailers that uh, Revive works with is, you know, they're, they're looking two years out and bringing back a lot of the technology. I mean, even though we've been pushing, you know, use your own device um, as the trend for three years now. So that's gone off the charts with the, with the health and wellness index that they track, um, re the retailers that you know have sound backing and funding and a trajectory and an understanding are saying, how do we bring these things back in and maybe a less touchy environment? We still want to uh, still want to engage people. The um, so you've got some unique perspectives there. How about um, marketplaces though? Everyone from Kroger to you name it, Best Buy and uh, a couple of companies in Canada. You know they're all looking at what. Amazon did, which seemed foreign to most people at first, and then Walmart jumped in, and you know, really Google and eBay were mostly eBay were pretty much were already doing it years ago. Yeah. How, how do you see that in terms of uh, strategy for for brands and manufacturers? I mean, I'm a big fan of and a big believer that uh, that brands need to figure out cost effective ways to connect with consumers. Mm. And whether that's through a retail channel that takes 50 percent of the, the sales price or 40 percent or 60 percent or whatever it is, or a marketplace that might take 10, 15, 20 percent of, of the of the price. It, you know, we, I think brands in general, there's a value to being in a lot of those places. Right. Um, and you just need to work the business model to make sure that that that, that works for you. I mean, we're on Amazon with our brands um, in a it's what's called seller central in a in a in a marketplace kind of environment. Um, and what you what you gain in terms of lower marketplace fees versus the retailer margins 
right. you end up spending back in customer acquisition because you, you know it's a marketplace and I've got to drive people to come to my pages and and buy my products and you know I think that's another another reason why being part of uh, a company like Rare Beauty Brands is is uh, is advantageous to small brands because we've got people who are actively figuring that out. It's not just the entrepreneur, you know, figuring it out for him or herself. You know, we've got the ability to invest in all the different ways that companies are going to market and all the right. different distribution channels and, and figure it out. And there's going to be some new ones in a couple of years. You know, when you see FedEx buying ShopRunner, there's a lot of merging, converging going on. Yeah. Um, so how do you approach, you mentioned influencers, creators, whatever, you know, everyone uses a different word on their platform, but let's just take Instagram and TikTok. How do you how do you either approach or how do you recommend you know brands kind of work work those channels? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm a big believer that content is key, and so brands need to be content creation houses. You need to be developing creative video and and you know photo and really all of the content, blog content, etc., um, to drive people to where wherever they are. Um, I think you also though need to be you need to have that creative side, but you also need to ha have a business side that says mm -hmm. where is the ROI, right? Because we all saw the rise of Google and then the rise of Facebook, and you know tons of venture money flowed into buying Facebook ads for DTC startups, and what happens? The algorithm figures it out, and ad rates go up, and ROI comes down, and so then we all rush over to to influencers and. The same thing happens, right? You know, at influencer rates go up and ROI comes down. And so, you know, good brands need to be taking advantage of those opportunities when they're there, but they also need to be sort of stepping back and thinking, okay, where's the next place going to be? Where's the right. next pocket of ROI to be found? Because it's constantly changing. Yeah. What would you tell them if uh, we were in a closed door session on that one? Um, well, it, it sounds like there's a, it sounds like there's a, 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 a hidden meaning there. I mean, I think that <laughs> no, if like you're, you're advising one of your, one of your startups saying, Hey, you know, TikTok, you know, Instagram, Facebook, forget that we got this, go work on this one. Oh, what, which, which is the new place? I mean, I think you gotta be looking at clubhouse right now. Um, yep, I don't go. know what their business model is going to be and how brands can engage there. It's like, I think it's only like a few months old, right. but you know, you know, TikTok has been kind of done and I, I'm even seeing the, the ROI wane a little bit on TikTok already. It's like eight months into it or something. Yep. Um, and clubhouse is eight weeks in. So, so we'll see, you know, what, what's next. Um, yeah. Yeah. But again, I think it's just being, you know, brutally honest with yourself and realizing, you know, Jeff Bezos is the richest guy on earth for a reason. And Mark Zuckerberg is, you know, right behind him for a reason. These algorithms are very good at extracting the maximum amount of cash from their, their customers. Yeah, exactly. Beware of DTC. What kind of spread do you recommend? Really all across industries that you know, companies would have, you know, in terms of e-commerce marketplace channels, direct to consumer, you know, influencer, you know, just take all the digital stuff, call it direct to consumer, but it's not really direct. Direct used to be called your website, but yeah, just percentage of hey, we're going through traditional retail, we're going through like third party digital e-com and then our own DTC. Any any magic formulas there? I don't think there's a magic recipe. I you know, I maybe counterintuitive, but I, I feel like it really starts from what is the brand's strategy? What is the way that the brand engages with consumers? Um, and that's something where you require physical touch feel, like it's apparel or you know some unique thing, then you're gonna be way weighted more towards you know, store, right? Um, right. 
you know, if it's a, a product that people understand and, and sort of get, um, it, you know, you're probably weighted more towards DTC. Um, and, and it also, it also relates to the category that you're in. If there's already a million brands on Amazon selling a moisturizer, it's hard to stand out in that crowd. And so you've got to think of a, a better way or, you know, maybe go, yeah. you know, the dermalogica route and you go after spas and salons, uh, you know, I think you just got to be creative and match the distribution strategy to the brand strategy. Um, and wherever you end up on a percentage basis of DTC versus Amazon versus in-store is where you end up. Right. Yeah. Good advice. The, um, I really want to thank you for having you kind of come on and share some of your, uh, Secrets interested in um, just how would you advise a lot of these companies out there, startups, indie brands to kind of dance with, uh, you know, either large corporates or incubators, accelerators, venture studios, which is more your model, but yours is definitely a hybrid and quite frankly, just engaging with you. What, um, what are some of your tips there? Yeah. I mean, my, my one biggest piece of advice that I give entrepreneurs outside of dealing with large companies is always, yeah. and this is something that um, uh, a, a fellow portfolio company CEO, CEO said to me one time when I was going through a really, really tough time in my, in my in, with my business, not this business, a previous company. He said, you know, your main job as the CEO entrepreneur is to just never, ever, 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 ever give up. And, you know, that this was at a time when I was ready to sort of hand the keys back and say, guys, I, I can't figure this out. I'm out. And it was so valuable to hear that to just like the pluck and the persistence of the entrepreneur. And it's a little, again, a little trite to say it, but it, it really, really matters. So, so that's the, you know, the, just the fortitude to keep going when, when it looks bleak, because that's the only path to success. And then in terms of engaging with larger entities, you know, you have to have a very clear idea of what you want to get out of it. Um, you know, yeah. it's very easy to get involved in a conversation with a big company and they've got competing interests and they've got their own, you know, interests in mind and they might just want to learn from you. They might want to, you know, kick it around a little bit. They might be using you to just understand a, a category because they're looking to acquire something else. So go into it with like eyes wide open and knowing what you want to get out of it. And when they say, Hey, you know, would you tweak your product this way? No, the answer is no, we're, we're doing our thing. And, you know, unless you're going to pay me big money for it, no, right. we're going to do our thing. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of tire kickers out there, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, good, good advice. And now uh, if people were interested in maybe uh, partnering up with you, what's the best way to approach you guys? Well, I mean, rarebeautybrands.com. I'm Chris at rarebeautybrands.com. Would love to hear from folks that are out there that that see the opportunity to scale their brand and do it as part of a, a conglomerate of brands. Sounds good. Thanks for uh, coming on. Uh, you've been listening to Chris Hobson, the CEO of Rare Beauty Brands. And this is Dean Tobias with the Ruru Chronicles. I want to thank you for joining us today. We'll see you soon.